This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and I'm not going to lie, I'm pretty good at telling the truth. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and as a commemoration, John always stabs his Caesar salad 23 times before eating it. In this special episode, we have a guest interview with expert Chinese teacher, trainer, and innovator, Terry Waltz. She's a renegade in the Chinese language community, championing the cause of comprehensible input, which is the future of all language education. Like us, she's published a host of graded readers in Chinese and shares a career full of wisdom with us in about 30 minutes. John and I will break down our interview and talk about the points that are critical to you as a Chinese learner. Plus, you'll get some talk about the most recent 2020 National Chinese Language Conference. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah. Hey, I'm John Pazden in Shanghai, China. This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Oh, yes it is. And we got quite the show for everyone today. But before we kick into that, we have a number of reviews. Okay, we got one from Tanya. She says, thanks so much for your podcast. They are so motivating. I studied Mandarin many times and failed, i.e. paused it many times in my life. But thankfully, Mandarin teaching has come so far and has improved so much over the years. I'm really more motivated now that there's more material out there. Could you tell me, are your breakthrough level books of 150 characters the same as HSK1? Many thanks and keep up the good work. Our breakthrough level books are 150 characters, but they are not taken from the HSK. And that is because our standard is developed for developing reading fluency, and the HSK doesn't really have the same goals. But the good news is that it does overlap a lot. Our next review is from Helen F. from Austin, Texas. She says, I really love this podcast. In the beginning, I really thought it was similar podcast to Chinese Pod or Chinese Class 101, and will teach you Chinese, and I'm glad it wasn't. You see, I actually did learn Chinese for about two years already, and I gave up due to lack of resources that are at my level. I tried looking for easy reading materials, but only found super advanced materials, and looking up everything in the dictionary 80% of the time really makes me lose interest. No wonder. Hearing your podcast with all the guests and hearing about their own struggles similar to my own and how they work through it really motivated me to pick up Chinese again. So I did after about eight episodes. I'm caught up now to all episodes today. I've learned many new tricks, such as putting the little sticky notes with the name things and characters all over my home, as mentioned in episode six, to get a mini immersion feel. She also mentions that at the end of each episode, you always mention that we should share it with that one guy named blank, but how come they're never female? It's because Jared is sexist. Come on, Jared. <laughs> all right. Well, it's going to be different this episode, I'm telling you. And final note, she says the drop down list for what's up in your contact page in the website is hilarious. Well, I appreciate it. Someone finally noticed. There's nothing Jared hates more than people not noticing how hilarious he is. Don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, but I want to say that this is one of the best messages we can get. Someone who quit Chinese but then restarted because they found a, a new enthusiasm. That is awesome. I'm really happy to hear that, Helen. That's a super inspiring story. So keep going. You can do this. Okay. And then this last one is from Cindy. She says, I've been listening to your podcast since January when I started learning Chinese at the age of 52. It's never too late. My question about the breakthrough books, do you have a list of characters used in the books? It would be really helpful to have a list of the characters in your breakthrough books and the pinyin as well if this is available. I'm really looking forward to reading Chinese. Thanks. Well, this is possible. 
We're going to be releasing vocabulary lists for each book, which separates the regular words and the stories from the proper nouns and also separates out the key vocabulary that, that gets glossed in the story and gets put in the back of the book. So we're going to have all that available soon. This is something that Jared is personally bugging me about repeatedly. Oh, yeah. It's coming. All the time. It's coming. Every day. Okay, so today for this podcast, we are going to cut to our interview first, but our interview is a very interesting, I encourage everyone to stick through this one, it is fantastic, it's with Terry Waltz. First off, I've known Terry for about five or six years, I met her at a conference some time ago, and we've been in touch, but I recently got an email from Jessica Mann, and she said, she requested, hey, get Terry Waltz on your podcast, so I messaged Terry, and then boom, here we got this episode. Yeah, Terry Waltz, I met her at the same conference and I had a great chat with her. She is super inspiring. She is a rebel within the industry and really helping create real change that's helping all you learners out there. So uh, please listen to what this woman has to say. Take it away, Terry. My English name is Terry Waltz. My Chinese name is Tsailin. I am from the grand town of Smalbany, New York. So called because although it's the state capital, it's not up to much really. So, well, Terry, I've got to start out with the question of like, why did you start learning Chinese? I flipped a coin. Flipped a coin? <laughs> wow. Seriously. I flipped a coin. When I was in high school, I did Spanish, French, German, and Russian. Slightly ambitious, are we? Yes. Bored. So when I went to apply for college, I knew that I wanted to do languages. I applied to Georgetown, which at that time had a school of languages and linguistics. I love and Georgetown. didn't apply anywhere else. Just I'm looking back going, really? Seriously? But that's what I did, and I was accepted as a Spanish major. And then after a while, over the summer and so forth, you kind of think about things, they settle in, and I said, do I really need a piece of paper to prove that I speak Spanish? And it seemed to me that maybe not. Maybe it would be better to switch languages and go for something that would be, this will make you laugh, economically feasible. Mm, Remember, yeah. this was the 80s, okay, in my defense. <laughs> it was different then. So basically it was... Russian, Arabic, Chinese, Japanese. Russian, I had already done some of, and there's way too much grammar. I just can't be asked. Arabic didn't seem like a good choice for women. So it was Chinese, Japanese, Chinese, Japanese. Eh, flipped a coin. I became a Chinese major without knowing anything. I didn't know ding. So you legit flipped a coin. I legit flipped a coin. Mm -hmm. And it was like... <laughs> Wow. All right. It came up I mean, Chinese and here I am. Because you know. 80s, I mean, that was Japanese era, right? It was. Everyone's going was. to Japanese. So you're like, ah, sure. Why not? Let's do it. Yeah. And wow. I, it's been a good decision, but I can certainly see looking back from the great altitude of being in my 50s now, it's really fascinating how that one random decision set off this chain reaction of all these things that never would have happened, you know, had I majored in Japanese. Of course, there's another chain out there that never happened. It's like a Star Trek episode. Yeah. That's interesting because John Pasden, he majored in Japanese. Mm -hmm. And then it was after he was in Japan, he thought, oh, China was interesting. He went to China. He started studying Chinese and he switched. But I've heard a number of stories like cool. that. But so what did you do then? I flipped that coin. All right. Chinese it is. What happened? Right. So I made good use of my summer embroidering Chinese characters on my towels, not knowing whether the adjective went before or after the noun. Wow. Well, I mean, well, how stupid is that? You're a teenager. You're, you're excited. <laughs> and I went off to college and did my two years. And of course, at Georgetown, everyone who is a language major goes abroad for their junior year. There is no junior class. So junior year, I got onto a plane and flew to Taiwan. And I went actually at Dragon Boat Festival. So I was mm -hmm. over there for the summer before that year as well. 
which is where I have conceived my enormous distaste for zongzi. <laughs> Might as well just throw those things into the sea, right? <laughs> Here I am arriving in Taiwan at Dragon Boat Festival where everyone eats these zongzi, the glutinous rice with unmentionable things inside of it wrapped in leaves. And everyone loves them. And they're everywhere. And that's great. Except that when you took two years of college Chinese and thought that you were a very good Chinese student, and then you land on the shores of a Chinese-speaking nation, you soon discover you are not, in fact, a very good Chinese speaker. <laughs> and so I had to eat several weeks of zongzi for failure to be able to get anything else. Oh, was really? That <laughs> yeah. So it was like you were force-fed these things, right? They were in the house. I was staying with some family or other. I don't remember. They were in the house. I didn't, couldn't go to a 7-Eleven and buy anything. I couldn't take a bus. I, I was helpless. Wow. So yeah. that sounds like a pretty rough crash course to Taiwan. It was wonderful in that there was so much support from the expat students. and Everyone was kind of supportive to one another. And, and we figured it out after a short time. But the first couple of weeks were a bit rocky. Well, so you were there for an entire school year. Is that correct? I actually came home after the first semester. I did the summer and did the fall semester. And at that time, a dear friend of mine was diagnosed with cancer. And so I went back to Georgetown at that time. Fast forward, happy ending. He became a Latin teacher, believe it or not. These days is what I hear. I'm not in touch with him really anymore, but he's fine. It's all good. (laughs) So got back on track and went back and did the Wenyan classes and the newspaper class and all that thing. And graduated and said, I've got a degree in Chinese. I must be good. And I started out as a translator. Oh, my God. What was I thinking? You know. And in those <laughs> days, we didn't have the internet. So if I got a job with a term in it that I didn't know, did I say if? I should say when. When, yeah. yeah when there were terms, plural, in a job that I didn't know, I would have to take all of them, consolidate them, and go to a Chinese restaurant and have lunch and hope that my waiter was actually a graduate student in physics or mechanics or whatever it was I was trying to translate and be really nice to him or her and hope that I could get a little help. And they were always very kind about it. (laughs) So you were translating from Chinese to English? Only, only, yes. I would never to this day translate into Chinese. It would just cause so much laughter that death would occur for some people. (laughs) That would not be true. Yeah. So true. Wow. So yeah. you really jumped into translation. Were you just kind of a one-man job or one-woman job, right? A uh, one-woman shop, yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. I should not have been doing that, but and yet you did. And, you know, like I said, in the 80s, you could get away with stuff like that. There were yeah. far fewer people in the game. I mean, I had the one of the first fax machines, believe it or not. Really? Uh, so I could get Chinese documents faxed to me, and this was a huge advantage in business. But I know you went to Taiwan, so I imagine you had studied traditional characters, correct? I started out in the De Francis book. Oh, so yes. Charles that Francis. was traditional and, you know, the blue book and the green one and all the different things. Our teachers were from Taiwan. We had one who was from Beijing by way of Taiwan. But one of these scary, you know, the Wenyan teacher who you just kind of sat there and didn't try to move very much. I don't remember how I learned Simplified. Probably fourth year college, I think, with the newspaper classes and like that. I really do advise getting a really good grounding in traditional. I think it's easier to go from traditional to simplified than the other way around. I think you're right. Well, something I'm kind of interested in hearing from your perspective, because uh, let's fast forward. You've been involved in Chinese education for many years. But how would you contrast like the way that you were taught and you learned Chinese 
you know, back 80s, 90s versus kind of how it's taught now. And how's that whole industry and the whole profession progressed and changed? Not much. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I it will be known. Most people who know of me professionally know that I am a very strong proponent of comprehensible input. Hmm. As are and, we. Excellent. I love that. But I think that those of us who are in the CI game, so to speak, we lose sight of how many people are not. Mm-hmm. And really, it's a vast majority of the teachers out there. So these days, when I deal with teachers, I'm still having the same discussions that I would have had 20 years ago or more about the centrality of writing characters by hand from memory or the importance of input or about four skills or delaying reading or all these things. I've whinged on and on about on my blog at some point. So da tong xiao yi, you know, in, to some degree. The big similarities, little changes, mm-hmm. really. It's hard to say. The people who are innovating are really innovating. And the ones mm-hmm. who aren't are really, really struggling not to. I can definitely relate with that. I've worked with a lot of teachers as well through Manor Companion just around the mm-hmm. country. And sometimes a lot of them, they have that very traditional mindset that every character has to be written. You know, they'll just pick it up. They're not understanding that concept of, hey, you know, the kids can only understand 80%. That ain't good enough. Things like that. Not even close. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Was it Now, was it you guys? That, I can't remember the source that did that amazing demonstration about comprehensibility in text. Yes. Yeah. I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. So for listeners, I mean, we should share that. Uh, We have a blog post about it. But uh, yeah. So for listeners, what we did is we took a passage of text from one of our books Mm -hmm. and we subbed out some of the characters for ancient characters that nobody knows. (laughs) But totally believable. Yeah. Totally believable. Totally feasible. Yeah. But nobody knows them. You looked at it and you thought, why don't I know that? I know I know that. I don't know that. (laughs) When I showed the teachers, they're like, that character's wrong what's wrong with that character? And I'm like, you don't know it. And they're like, no, I do. And I'm like, no, you don't. But the the purpose of it, we have three texts to simulate what it's like to read at 98% comprehension, 95% comprehension, and 80% comprehension. And when you show that to teachers, usually they get it if they're not complaining that these characters are wrong. Yeah, I've used those in workshops. I did that at the first Australian National CI workshop that I did a couple of years ago. And I always set them up and I just say, is there a native Mandarin speaker here? Oh, yes. Would you mind reading a paragraph out loud? Oh, yeah, no problem. And then it starts. Yeah. And they're amazed. It's such a wonderful tool for helping teachers and students in a way to realize how difficult it is when we're not reading at or below our level. So maybe you could comment on this. I want to hear from your perspective. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing Chinese teachers these days? Or... Maybe that may not be the best question. It's more of what is the biggest challenges facing Chinese language education? For me, it is methodology. And I know because I'm a trainer, it sounds kind of self-serving to say that, I suppose. But I really believe that. I have seen what happens when you take an entire program and you base it on really comprehending that input completely and on repeating enough so that the input is accumulating and accumulating and accumulating and not teaching everything as though it is Spanish. I have nothing against Spanish. I teach Spanish, but Chinese is different. When you have a student read Chinese, you cannot rely on phonetic information because there ain't none. Mm -hmm. And before all the Chinese teachers in the audience raise their hands and go, no, but X percent of characters are phonetic, meaning compounds. 
That's nice. But if I'm a foreigner, I always think of myself as la wai, that kind of thing. Hmm. If I'm a non-native reader of Chinese, those compounds don't mean anything to me. No. First of all, I look at that and I say, oh, that's a gun or maybe a hun or it could be a kun. I'm not really sure. And then I've got four tones to choose from. So times three, that's 12. And that's assuming it's not some outlier that isn't pronounced that way. And that's more so assuming that I know a word that has something to do with food that's pronounced like a certain syllable. And that means I need to be a fluent speaker to be able to come up with that because that's like doing a crossword puzzle yeah, or, or a word game. I tell that to people who run across to say, oh, but you can guess the pronunciation. Yeah, that's an advanced skill. And oh, yeah. that works well for the people who already speak the language and may not know that character, right? What are some of the things that you think are being done wrong? or which could be done better in the classroom? Well, I'm a big, big proponent, obviously, of direct-to-text reading, cold character. And Explain that. What, what is exactly is that? Right. It's a very improbable-sounding thing, and most people don't believe it until they've seen a demo of it. Basically, when I was working at the Star Talk at the University of Hawaii, starting in 2011, I started looking at reading, and I was teaching oral language only. I was brought in to do TPRS for oral language. And I had a lovely lady, Christine Wogstad, who was a longtime Chinese teacher in Minnesota somewhere, who was doing the reading class. And a more dedicated teacher you will never find. She really cared about those kids. She spent all her free time trying to help them read, and yet they couldn't read. And I'm not a shy person, as some may know. And one mm-hmm. night, you know, late at night in the camp thing, she's sitting at the table, and I'm doing lesson planning, and she's doing whatever, and she's just sighs, and she says, oh, I just don't know what to do. They have filled out this little form every day for two weeks. It was like a four-week camp, and they still can't read the characters. And I said, do you want me to tell you why? I'm burning my bridges my first year. I'm this new teacher at this camp. But you know what? She said, yeah, why? And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to write you a story, and it's going to be repetitive, and it's going to only use language that I know I have beaten to death in this oral class that we've had. Mind we're already two weeks in. I said, I'm going to use only that language, and you're going to have them read just by looking at it. Don't teach them the characters first. Don't worry about sounds or stroke order or anything else. You're just going to point to it, and you're going to read along, and you're going to say to them, you join in when you're ready. And she went in and did it. And I give her a lot of credit because, I mean, who's going to do a crazy thing like that? I can't prove to an article or proof or anything. She's like, what? Will it work? I said, it'll work. Do it. She goes in, she points to everything, they start reading. She hands the pointer to a student. The student starts pointing, they keep reading. She sits down on the side and she just has this look of shock on her face. But then the kids get to the end of the story. And we had written it to be an episodic story like, on Monday, George did this. It's actually George Shanchen Yoro Baozi, which is a book mm-hmm. now. We got through Monday and Tuesday and we were out of stuff and class wasn't over yet. And she's like, what do I do now? And I said, I don't know. You know, what do we do now? So she goes up to the whiteboard and she starts writing questions, handwriting. Now, this is a woman who can actually handwrite characters from memory, unlike me. She's wonderful. She starts writing questions and the kids start reading them and answering them. And doesn't this one little stinker, as she always called him, this one little stinker says, shouldn't you have a duh in there? (laughs) And she was like, what is happening? This kid had acquired language in his head. He had this tiny little MP3 of Chinese playing in his head, and that told him. It pushed his reading. 
It had his brain tell him what he should be seeing next. And that's exactly how cold character works. The problem is it's based on really dense, comprehensible input. And it has to be incredibly dense. For Spanish, you can go halfway and then do some reading because they can look at a word in Spanish and work out which word it is and match it up. You can't do that in Chinese. Yeah. So that's part of why I think it hasn't really taken off. And also lack of materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys are, are doing amazing work in that regard and getting more stuff out there for our students to read. You guys seem to concentrate one level above me. I'm down here at the bottom level with the really, really beginners. And I don't even bother to write at your level. I can't keep up with you guys. <laughs> um, That's great to hear you. Like even that story of how you probably even got into start writing some of this content. And I think for our mm-hmm. listeners, we have mentioned you before on our podcast, but you have created your own graded readers. But a lot of them are really low level stuff, which is amazing. Well, you say graded like I'm organized and the un- tragically they really aren't and i get emails every now and then you know what order do these go in and i'm like well i don't really know but there is a line of them that kind of will take you through a two-year sequence if you follow them and do all the input and so forth and it does lead into a chapter book that's great it's interesting to hear that story about cold reading because i've never really heard it about exactly that method but just regurgitating it sounds from what i understand is that you're going to write down characters that the students already know well right? That they know the words well. And mm-hmm. so now you're just matching up an oral word with a graphical representation, which is the character. You're matching a squiggle with a sound. <laughs> I like that as much, much more it's eloquent than I put a it. A squiggle with a sound. Yeah. But the thing is, it's not just going through it once. That's what people see. Yeah. I've got this down now where I can take a group of people who have no Chinese. I give them an hour of oral input and then they read Giuseppe, that first book in my series. Mm-hmm. In characters, right out, straight, just like that, no problem. That's a party trick. You shouldn't do it that way. You mm. should be taking four days or five days to input this language slowly and really richly and enjoy it and let everybody have a chance to say if they like this or like that or if they you know, feel like eating this or that. Slow, 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 slow. It's so important. And then do the reading and it will not fail. So now contrast that to what do you see happening in classrooms today in your experience? Because you've been around the world doing this. You've been, right. you've had a lot more experience in working with teachers than I do. So what do you see them doing that's in contrast to like this type of method? Well, the first thing I have to say is I have never yet seen a teacher who did not want the best for their students. Just to get that out front. I, I am not imputing any bad objectives or laziness to any of these mm. teachers. So... I just really want that to be understood. You know, I agree with you too. They want to do well, but sometimes they just don't have the experience or the tools to do that. Right, exactly. Having said that, what I'm seeing is teachers need to have something to go on. They need a textbook. They need something to support them because typically Chinese teachers might have four preps, five preps. They might travel between buildings. They might have some unconscionable number of students. They're busy people. So that's one thing. They don't have a lot of time to prepare. So they use a curriculum that exists. I get it. That makes sense. But let's look at a book like Integrated Chinese. How many vocabulary words are there in a chapter? A lot. And if you look at how many times, for example, each one of those characters is seen in print that a student would read, you might be lucky to get four or five times for a particular word in the course of a chapter. And that includes the little dialogue and the reading passage and the exercises. 
So how do you expect someone to learn to read if that's the only opportunity they have to learn to read and they are learning those words at the same time by force of memory? So that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of vocabulary. And this was how I was taught. Mm-hmm. Here's the vocabulary list. I still remember that. It was a Thursday. We didn't have Friday classes. And at the end of the period, we were talking about tones or something. Teacher said, okay, open your book to page three, I think it was. Do you see those 27 characters? Yes, ma'am. Quiz Monday. Have a nice weekend. <laughs> we didn't even know the words yet. But yeah. it was considered that you needed to memorize the words, memorize the characters, and then you would apply them you know, and decode things either in speech or in reading. And that, I think, is the biggest problem that we're facing right now. It's not how the brain does language. It just isn't. In Chinese, if we let the reading lag too far behind the speaking, then we have to use memorization. There's no way around it. Because cold characters are really delicate balancing act. You want to give a little oral language, and then they can guess accurately. If you give too much, they can't guess anymore. That seems to pair well in with, with a lot of independent learners who are maybe studying by themselves, who mm-hmm. spend lots of times with flashcards and lists of words, right? Because yep. they're kind of like, oh, I got to get these characters in my head, right? And before I move forward in any direction. Or don't even get me going. The belief that writing the characters by hand helps you learn. <laughs> you maybe. Know, it, I think there's a small case for it, but overall, it's not effective, right? And I say this on the show all the time, is that learning to fluently handwrite characters is another skill in and of itself. In the amount of time that it takes me as a teacher to impose memorized handwriting on a class. So all the practice time, all the lecture, all the stroke order, all the forcing them to do homework and so forth. If I used that time to have them read interesting things that they could truly read on their own, they would have three times the language. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Full disclosure, I don't have a footnote to that. I don't have a research study to back that up. But they would learn a lot more language orally. It's your anecdotal experience. I've seen that, too. You know, it's interesting, too, you're talking about getting them into reading. Uh, There's a statistic that just came to my mind. It's like our book, The Secret Garden, Mimi Mm Huayan. It's 10,000 characters long, Mm -hmm. but it uses only 291 unique characters. Yep. Yep. It's like the very first thing that my students read in cold character reading is 400 characters long, Mm -hmm. but it only has 29 characters in it. Somewhat fewer now. I think I cut out the yes. Or something. But, <laughs> and that's uh, critical, though, right? It's yeah. totally critical because that does amazing things for your language. One of the things I've got about comprehensible input, extensive reading, as mm-hmm. I, I say, it's fluency now. If you only know 300 words, we'll get fluent in those 300 words, right? And you can do a lot. My Cantonese is very limited. I had 14 hours of CI based Cantonese, and I went to Hong Kong and got along because wow. I really, really could use that subset of words. Now, obviously, I wasn't going to be having any philosophical debates or anything like that. That's the good side of it. The bad side of it is, to be honest, you sound like you know what you're doing. Because you've gotten it by ear. Your tones are very good because you're hearing those tones instead of trying to produce them by thinking of, you know, moving your hand and applying a rule. But the problem is people hear you sounding accurate and they assume you're much better than you are. Mm, yeah. And so, so you ask that question and you have no idea what the response is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. But, you know, no. all in good fun. <laughs> well, what kind of trends do you see happening right now in Chinese education? My concern is that we need to retain our beginners. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a trend that's happening, but it needs to be a trend that starts. 
there have been these peaks and valleys in different languages for a while. Like you said, back in the eighties, when I was getting into it, it was Japanese. That was the big thing. That was the language to do. And before that, it had been Russian. And then a while after that would have been what, maybe the late nineties or early two thousands, Chinese, Chinese language of the future, 21st century. I'm seeing that wave go back out. Now we're seeing declining enrollments and I cannot help but think that part of the reason is at our beginning levels, we are not embracing comprehensible input. We are not seeing the level of dropouts from Chinese classes between, say, level one and level two when they're taught with CI. I don't have specific recent figures, but I do remember somebody saying at a workshop, it was a Blaine Ray, and he collected statistics back then, that he tended to retain, I think he was saying, 25 to 30%. And he was talking about from level one to the terminal level all the way through. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's pretty impressive. We're always going to lose some. We're competing with 60 million AP exams now and having to work and you need volunteer hours. And I can't believe I went back to teach at my old high school and Mm -hmm. I was just shocked at what these kids could do and had to do compared to what I did coasting through high school. You know, that's a very good point. And I do have conversations like this with some other teachers because it's a hard thing retaining students. I think of a one person I had interviewed about their experience. And when he went into college, the teachers were like old school, hardcore, do 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 do. And, you know, and the dropout rate, I think there was only like a 10% went on to that second year. And it was like his program, they were like trying to weed out the people mm-hmm. who aren't serious, right? So it was like a filter. But it was well, different. The teacher can only open the door. That's right. Oh, come but on. Contrasting this with a friend who went through the Foreign Service Department for the United States State Department with the Foreign Service Language Education, he mm-hmm. says that in there it's more of like a pump than a filter. They're there to help you like get through. And so he never knew anyone who actually dropped out of the program, the language program. Because right. the goal is to like get you through. And I think that's also another thing changing up, thinking about with, with teachers sometimes, like how can we get everyone through, right? Yeah, and this is systemic because administrators are often suspicious if a teacher presents a class that's earning all A's and B's. But if you are teaching CI and doing it correctly, doing it well, you should be getting those results. There is no bell curve in language acquisition. If a person has normal neurological function, normal hearing and speech, there is no bell curve. Everyone is a native speaker of their first language. Yeah, that makes and a lot of sense. Why should we expect anything different from a second language? Well, it's because we're preventing that acquisition from happening in many cases. Wow. It's, yeah, it's really sad, but there you go. One of the other things that I would like to see is more people getting back to communicate with our students. And it doesn't have to be in person these days. It can be recorded online or something. But people who are actually working with Chinese, people who are resident in China or people who are in careers that use Chinese, nothing against Chinese teachers. They're wonderful people. I mean, I love Chinese teachers. But if I'm a teacher standing there in the classroom saying, you should learn Chinese really well. And my student says, why? What basis do they have to imagine a job with Chinese that's not a teaching job? Mm. So I think that in some ways it was fun for me as an interpreter to teach sixth graders and they would say, well, what can we do with this? And I said, well, I'll tell you a story. I grew up right here in this area and my family was nothing special. 
And they flew me to Hong Kong first class to interpret for two days for a pharmaceutical annual meeting. Wow. That would never have happened had I not learned Chinese. Now, That's so true. Of course, it was kind of also a quirk of society at that time. I went back to Taiwan and lived there for nearly 10 years in the 90s. And at that time, I will say right up front, I'm not ashamed of it. I think Taiwanese men are delicious. <laughs> they are lovely. My eyes are eating ice cream all the time. Well, the engine should be cheating. Mm. <laughs> However, in the best way, in a respectful way, because I'm a little bit <laughs> over course. the hill now and I'm married. <laughs> but anyways, I appreciate them aesthetically. And when I was younger and single, one might have hoped to, I don't know, date them or something like that. But in those days, the Taiwanese young men only had eyes for the young Taiwanese women who were all thin and beautiful, had that beautiful long hair and were lovely. And the foreign men who were there also only had eyes for the lovely Taiwanese women. So <laughs> as a foreign woman, I was kind of the third sex. I was kind of left out of all that. <laughs> and so I ended up spending an awful lot of time in tea shops reading and reading and reading. And at the time, it was like, oh, man, you know, I'm feeling left out. But when I look back on it, of course, it doesn't feel that way anymore. I see that that was how I got into interpreting school. Oh, that really? was how I managed to get into a Taiwanese interpreting school by exam, was that I had done all that reading. And I'm geeky enough that the reading was things like reinforced concrete construction and the use of rotating contact water filters in pollution remediation and you know weird wow. stuff like that. But that was what actually allowed me to have enough vocabulary and enough confidence and operating chips in Chinese to get into interpreting school which was the toughest two years of my life because you're expected to know everything. And today it's like, you don't know all the books of the Bible. Come on. You need to know all those in Chinese. And then you <laughs> go home and memorize those. And they'd be like, what? You don't know the Zodiac signs. Come on. It was just always something, but fascinating, fascinating. You know, that sharing that story with makes me think about how you went through a slog. You were reading at a low level of comprehension a yeah. lot of unknown words, things that weren't familiar oh, with you. Highlighter right? after highlighter. <laughs> right. And the thing about that is there's a bit of a confirmation bias for some people who went and learned that way. And I know mm -hmm. you don't have this, right? Because you understand like yeah. what helps people really learn. But if you've met some people before who learn Chinese the hard way like that, right? Mm -hmm. Going oh, yeah. through newspapers and stuff. And so they come around and they, they come back and say, this is how you learn Chinese, right? Well, you do get to a point. When you are a beginner, there's nothing to attach new language to. These are language babies. If you give them 100% comprehensible they're going to flower in front of you so fast. But they get to a certain level and we have to let them out. We have yep. to let them go forth and go to kindergarten and go out into the world. And that's when they have their structure acquired. Mm -hmm. They're not struggling to understand that there's a second la in this sentence and what does it mean or that you repeat the verb or whatever it is. And that's when they can digest large amounts of language from materials that might be harder. That's why your books can have slightly more unknowns than mine can. And those who are at an even higher level of writing, you know, a more character-rich level of writing than yours, they're not going to know every word, and that's okay. That's right. And so there's always going to be that stretch at yeah. some point, right? Yeah. For some people, when they try to get to that level, like mm -hmm. start really that big stretch at mm -hmm. the very beginning, a lot of those people get lost. Oh, and yeah. I always say that, like, for every one of those persons who went through that hard slog at the beginning to just kind of get there, there's probably a hundred people that gave up and dropped out. Easily. 
And today, uh, the last time I was in Taiwan, last October, I usually stop by the National University. A friend of mine teaches interpreting there, so I go and bother him when he's teaching. So I was sitting in on his class. He runs an interesting consecutive interpreting class in that most of his students obviously are Taiwanese. It's a Taiwanese university. There are very few white people or non-Chinese people in the course. So what he's done is he's recruited other random foreigners who have an interest in Chinese who've been studying it to come to the class and audit and kind of be sparring mm. partners so that his native Chinese speakers get feedback immediately from a native English speaker and vice versa. But what astounded me with that was that I was meeting some of the young people who are in Taiwan today, and I'm sure the same is true in China. We now have young people going to these places to do their undergraduate work. They are undergraduate students. They go to a language school for six months or a year, and then they are dropped into undergraduate. Personally, I would rather nurture somebody as a speaker with a nice, gentle CI course where they would feel confident and relaxed in reading, but you know, they're making out. The important thing is that when they're in the university, they're getting so much input and it's compelling for them because it's their life. It's their degree. They need to get through this. They make friends, peer groups, they, you know, they have girlfriends and boyfriends and all these things. And when they are going into that interpreting class, even as auditors, they are so freaking fluent. It makes me cry because I was not like that at that age. And I wish I had been. But there you go. Well, Terry, I'm curious, what advice would you give to someone who right now says, I want to learn Chinese? How do I get started? What would you say to that person? Look for that CI label on, on your teacher or on your class. Comprehensible input. Comprehensible input. And I sound like a broken record, but it's so true. I've learned languages since using CI and like Cantonese, for example. And even with the limited amount of hours, I could do so much more with the language with so much less time invested than the hard, you know, put your seat in the chair and memorize and memorize and memorize method. So I would say if you can possibly find someone like that, do it. If there's nothing near you, there are people out there. There are teachers who teach online with CI. There are more and more. It's still a little hard to find them in Chinese, but if you tap into people who are teaching this way, they will know people who know people who know people. That would be the biggest thing if you're starting from zero. If you're working on your own, don't be rigorous. Rigor is the word before mortis, okay? Don't be rigorous. <laughs> it's not going to help you. Be patient with yourself and give yourself chances to repeatedly encounter the same language in different combinations if you possibly can. So get these early low-level readers Find a Chinese teacher, even just a one who's not a CI person, and say, hey, I just did this lesson in integrated Chinese. Could you write me five paragraphs that use this language, but just a little bit different? And then you've got material that you should conceivably be able to understand, and that will really help. You need to make your wow. own sometimes. That's actually really good advice. I hadn't even thought about that, yeah. asking for a teacher or tutor to do that. Yeah. Another thing that I do a lot, and this is even as an interpreter, in terms of vocabulary, yeah. I use Quizlet. They're awesome. I have a teacher account so I can record sound, although Chinese is already helpfully already there in sound. So I will put up a vocabulary list if I've got a conference coming up and I need to memorize 100 words, say, technical terms. Put them up on Quizlet, and I download them to my phone. And on my phone, I can set it up so that it will play in random order 
one side of the card, the audio, and then the other side. Pause, another card, another card. So it's basically audio flashcards. And it's nice as a way to get away from needing to see everything in Chinese. I think a lot of times we emphasize the writing system because it is hard. And it does require a lot of time, if, especially if you want to be a by hand for memory writer, which I honestly don't aspire to. But it takes a lot of time. And so I think sometimes if we can get away from relying on the eye so much and just trust our ears, it can be helpful too. The best way, of course, is if you have a CI class and you've got a teacher doing story asking or picture talk or whatever form of input they might be doing, if you can record it with their consent, you can edit out your voice. So erase mm-hmm. your voice using something like Audacity. It's a free thing you can get for any platform. It takes a while to do it, but edit out your own voice. And then what you end up with is the teacher saying, does Bob want a hamburger? Yes, you're right. Terrific. Bob wants a hamburger. Does Bob want a pickle? No, he doesn't want a pickle. He wants a hamburger. You're getting a flood of correct Chinese in those situations. This is very, very, very beginners, of course. As you move up the ranks, follow your interests. You know, read things that really interest you. If you're not interested in Chinese fairy tales, that's okay. I am culturally American. I will admit that I have never been thrilled by the Monkey King. There, I've said it. (laughs) And for a time, I felt like I was a failure, that these things just didn't really pique my interest. But that's okay. I don't have to be completely Chinese to love the Chinese language and be really motivated by it. There's so much cultural understanding that you need to really even comprehend it, you know, like Mm -hmm. fox spirits. I still don't get them. Why can they just all of a sudden become people and then then they're foxes and then they're magical and then what's their magic? I don't get it. But it's like try to take a Chinese person and explain to them what a fairy godmother is. Like, who is she? Where did she come from? Why does she have one? Do I have one? You know, what, what do I owe the fairy godmother? There's all these things that, you know, she just is. She just does this. You know, that's just what she does. I will say a lot of people now who are writing readers are really delving into culture and sort of social issues and things like that. And my books are just probably never going to go in that direction because I just don't have that skill set. I think it's wonderful people are writing those kind of books, but I don't think that has to be every book. I think we have a place for all kinds of topics in books, especially if we're trying to, as teachers, hook a reluctant reader or get some kid who's kind of on the fence about continuing with Chinese. If we give that kid a book that really speaks to him or her, that might be a way to get them to go on because when reading becomes a pleasure instead of something that you have to get through to pass the class, that's what can open the door. There's a saying, it says that there's no such thing as a bad reader. It's just someone who hasn't discovered the right book yet. I think that's true. And and also I'm really grateful to get you on the show, Terry, because you do graded readers, we do graded readers. The main thing is that you're writing comprehensible content for learners. And this is very important. I don't see us as competitors. People need to read everything. I recommend your stuff all the time, especially if I have those outliers, you know, who zip through all the easy stuff and they want something more challenging. You know, it's yeah, great so that there's a right place for them it. to go. So Terry, if someone wants to find you, tell us where they can find out more about you and even about your books. Well, let's see. I've got a website under my own name, terrywaltz.com, which is kind of aimed toward teachers to some extent. It's more about teacher training and things like that. My very, very opinionated blog is on there. It's, <laughs> as far as readers and materials and things like that, that would be squid4brains.com. 
So they can go find your books on squidforbrains.com. Yep. And that's great. So anyone, if you're looking for a special, they have some lower level graded readers. And you do have some readers, I think, are equivalent to about our level one-ish. And that's great. And we definitely recommend people to come out and check out your books. And they're very helpful for language learning and acquisition. I appreciate it. Well, Terry, thanks so much for being on the podcast with us. We really appreciate you sharing your perspective and your experience. My pleasure. All right, John. Now, wasn't that just a cracker jack of an interview? I don't really know what that means, but it was good. Now, there was a ton of things that she talked about, and so we have a lot to unpack here. I just want to say embroidering Chinese characters on towels. I've never heard of anything like that. I know a lot of people, they like to write by hand because only when you write by hand do you truly appreciate every stroke and exactly how the characters are arranged. So if that's true for writing with a pencil and paper, how... How true must that be for embroidery with traditional characters, I would assume? She's four parallel dimensions ahead of us, John. (laughs) (laughs) But I got to say, I really enjoyed this interview with Terry. It was just so refreshing to talk to someone who just gets it so deeply. And, you know, the core of what she was talking about is comprehensible input. And that's the thing that's just weaved through everything that she's doing, everything we talk about on the podcast and even with Manor Companion. So, John, something that really... I took away from this conversation with her is that, you know, I had asked her saying, hey, what's uh, changes that you've seen between, you know, the 80s when she was learning Chinese versus right now, as far as methodology and how like Chinese is taught? Like you said, she's a bit more of a rebel in the field. And she says, not much, you know, (laughs) but, you know, actually there has been quite a bit of change. But, you know, she said that there are those teachers out there who are really innovating and there's those who are really struggling not to. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think a lot of times the innovating teachers are kind of pitted against like the rest of the faculty, the the uh, department head who has to choose the textbook, the department head who's in charge of the budget and all that. And they're like, well, we've already got everything ready for this textbook. So like, why are you trying to make everyone's life miserable and give us extra work? Th- there are some real struggles out there in, in academia, and I think most of us don't appreciate that. They think it just comes down to their teacher. Is their teacher good or bad? So this past week was the National Chinese Language Conference, and I was been sitting in different workshops. But, you know, it's been interesting that seeing some of these speakers there, I mean, some of these guys have been spent their whole lives researching language education, but their PhDs back in, you know, the 70s or 80s. And just kind of the, a lot of the methodology has evolved, the research, the knowledge, and has evolved and changed in the field, but they're still kind of using a lot of traditional methods that largely borrow from like L1 education, how they how they learned Chinese. And whereas what we're talking about is that, hey, there's a whole bunch of research has come out specifically about like comprehensible input. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the teachers that started with like a traditional education, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they've really got a lot on their plate because on the one hand, the internet and computers have totally revolutionized the way everyone learns every language. And of course, Chinese is special. And then on the other hand, you know, the pedagogy of Chinese, how do we teach it well, is also evolving. So it really is a lot to uh, keep in your head, you know, to figure out the best way forward. But a lot of the younger teachers are doing a really great job. Some of the older teachers, too. And so I just hope that some of the teachers that have really good ideas for how to help the younger generation of learners, you know, their voices are heard more and more. Do you think you're hearing that at the conference? 
Yeah, I will say, yeah, at the conference, they have this uh, networking function thing where you kind of randomly match with someone else who's been networking. And and I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of Chinese teachers. And I've seen that, John, is that there are a lot of these teachers, you know, maybe they're younger or they're really trying to, you know, improve the outcomes with their students. And, you know, I will say this is that something that Terry said is that she's never found a teacher who did not want the best for her students. Pretty much all these students, they just they want the best for their students, but they may not have the right exposure to the methodology. And so when I have the opportunity to talk to some of these people who are really searching, they're like, hey, I'm really trying something. And I'm like, you know, hey, what if you look into some more, you know, comprehensible stuff? So leveled materials, graded materials, obviously Manor Companion is one of those, but there's other good materials out there. And sometimes students simply write their own. And it's not just that, you know, one of the things that Terry's talking about is just reading a lot, a lot of repetition, a lot of stuff that's just going in their ears after a while. And it just starts to make sense. I have talked to some teachers, they have comprehensible materials, like graded materials, but they're using it like a study material. They're spending one week to go through a chapter in one of our books. I mean, we're talking about a thousand characters and they're taking five class periods to go through that thousand characters. Where I'm like, no, 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 we, you should try to get through one to three chapters in a class period, just reading. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I worry about when we get requests for vocabulary lists. It's like, wait a minute, half the words in this book aren't new to you, right? Because if that's the way you're approaching it, then that's not really the way this is supposed to work. But I will say, though, that even comes down to a learner's motivation, right? There are some people just so excited to get into that book, right? And and they're willing to do, do the slog through vocabulary, or whatever, till they're leveled up to the book and, and go through it. John says, we don't necessarily advocate that. I think it's better to kind of scaffold up and level up before you do that. Yeah, I think it comes down to a lot of people's motivation, right? What are you really trying to accomplish? Well, on that vein, uh, one of the things Terry said, which I thought was really interesting, she was saying that so many schools spend so much time teaching their students to write. But if you took the time spent memorizing how to write characters and then you applied that to reading, like they could be reading so much better, so much earlier. And isn't oh, yeah. that what they want? <laughs> no, Terry said she thinks they'd have you know, three times the language skills. And she's like, no, that's anecdotal. You know, she doesn't have research for that. But that's what her experience is. I don't know. Maybe some of them want to open a tattoo parlor and start tatting Chinese characters. So they'd rather learn to write. But being able to read Chinese is really exciting and motivating to a lot of learners. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think about, John, when I first finally read a book in Chinese, I mean, I was like, you know, I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I, I posted on Facebook. I mean, this was like nine years ago, but you know, I was like, oh, I actually read a book in Chinese. It was, it was so motivating. It is so fantastic. It's because something like you never imagined you could do, but yeah, it, it is a big accomplishment. Okay. So let's get into one of the big topics that Terry covered. And she was talking about her own research into what she calls cold character reading. How would you summarize it, Jared, in one sentence? So basically, you have like a sentence that is full of words that you already know audibly, orally, but now you start matching that with the characters. And so as Terry says, you start matching a squiggle with a sound. Yeah, so you already know these words, you've heard them many times, and now you're just seeing these sentences which take those same words and put them in all kinds of different orders, make them questions, make them answers. The repetition and the fact that there's meaning to it starts making it stick. You know, John, just even talking about this, I finally realized that this is one of the ways I started learning a lot of characters. I, if I've shared some of my story before, but when I had worked at the, my first job in China, 
I was studying Chinese in the morning, then I was going to work and I was trying to use some of my Chinese to communicate. And we used QQ, you know, a chat program on your computer. And a lot of times I didn't know the characters, but I knew how to say it. And so I would just type out the pinyin and the characters would come up and I'd think, I hope that's it. <laughs> and I'd send it through. And then I usually got quick validation whether it was correct or not because then they would respond. Well, I think that's a little different because you're not even sure they're the right characters. Teachers <laughs> true, are probably true. a little more little more conscientious in that regard. I've done the same thing too. Like I remember one of the things I used to do a lot was when I would learn a new word, I would try to write example sentences with that word and I would just try to use other words that I know that that incorporate that word. And a lot of times they'd be wrong and the teacher would correct them. But basically you take that same idea and you turn it around and the teacher's doing that. So here's this word, uh, you know it now, and now here are all these sentences that could use that word and the rest of the sentence you already know and it just kind of ties everything together, reinforces those connections. You know, learning is about taking some new information and tying it into what you already know. So by putting all these words in, you know, different kinds of sentences, different orders, you're really tying everything together. And, you know, I've read some of Terry's books and they, they are very good at this because some of them will use only like 50 characters. But I mean, her book is like a thousand characters long. I mean, there's just tons and tons of repetition in there. And one thing I do like about Terry's books is that she does throw like English words in there. So she can maybe tell a story where... She fills in maybe a word that would be hard in Chinese, but just uses the English. But you start seeing the structure. You start seeing how everything comes together. Yeah, I remember she told me when I talked to her that time in Boston that some schools don't like her book specifically because she put some English words in there to help out the students. And apparently some schools, they have a ban on that kind of material. You know, this also brings up the other aspect she talked about of relating to like textbooks. She actually called it integrated Chinese. How many vocab words are in a chapter? You know, there's a lot. And then how many times do you see those actually used in the print? And he says, you know, the best case, maybe four or five times. Using textbooks, they're great at introducing the language, but it's really how can you reasonably expect anyone to learn to read Chinese in this way? In the textbook, when they have those small readings, you know, they're just remembering those things just by force of memory. So, and this just isn't really like how our brain really learns and really acquires and grasps the language. Well, I think this is something that a lot of people don't really think about, but it's kind of obvious if you think about it, which is most of our school systems are designed to get you to a level where you can pass a test. And if you need to be able to pass the test, then how many times do those vocabulary words really need to be repeated? And a textbook like Integrated Chinese is kind of optimized for that. Yeah, repeat some, but not so much that the person becomes super fluent in all the language. Because if they did that, they would sacrifice the amount of vocabulary you can learn in the same amount of time. Other people, other teachers, you know, educators, man or companion, were much more focused on getting people fluent at the lower level, which means repeating those same words over and over, getting lots of meaningful practice in. But we're doing that at the expense of adding lots of new vocabulary. It's like this continuum, which end are you on? I think a lot of people would say, oh, it should be in the middle somewhere. And uh, yeah, that's true. And I think a lot of good Chinese programs do move a little closer to the, the fluency stage as opposed to the, the vocabulary cramming uh, end of the spectrum. But that's something that has to be decided by a school program. Uh, even if they use the same textbook, there's different ways of approaching it, right? 
John, you're touching on something that I heard at the National Chinese Language Conference. I was listening to a speaker. He was talking about some of the different tests. Here in America, we have the AP Chinese test, which is for high school students. And if they pass it, they can get college credit. And he was contrasting it with the HSK test. And I'd never heard anyone describe it this way, but he says that the HSK test is more quantitative, where the AP Chinese test is more qualitative. And and I was like, oh, that's perfect. Because the HSK, it's more like, how many characters do you know? You know, how many words do you know? How many structures do you understand? And can you pass this test? The AP Chinese test is like, there's no word list for that test. And sometimes some teachers are like, oh, how am I supposed to do this? There's no word list. The point behind that AP Chinese test is like, how well can you use the language to communicate? How well are you able to write a, an idea or express an idea you know, in your essay? Yeah, I think that's totally true. Like When I work with clients, I prefer not to have the HSK as a goal. It's just not really the best goal if you're learning Chinese to communicate with human beings. But I recognize that it's a necessary evil. Some people need to take the HSK. And so if people are prepping for the HSK, my advice is always that the single most important thing to do is learn that vocabulary. Hopefully you're really learning it instead of just cramming it with flashcards. But in any case, you got to learn that vocabulary. Because even though the test is not only vocabulary, like just being able to, to guess on certain reading comprehension things or just all throughout the test, if you have a pretty good vocabulary, just everything is so much easier. And that's the HSK. So true. You know, but I really liked how Terry, she kind of gave an analogy. He says, at the beginning, you're, you're language babies. You need comprehensible input. And she's like, if you put a student, a learner, in a comprehensible input environment, they're just going to blossom. They're just going to flower. But there's going to be a point where they have to leave the nest, right? And, and that's when you start bridging that gap to maybe authentic materials, which are difficult, written for natives. But by the time they're ready to do that, you have a level of proficiency, you have a degree of fluency in the language. And now you are ready. Like even if you do have to tackle something that's only 80% comprehension, but that 80%, you know it well. And it's not as a big a challenge as it would be for someone who is a, a beginner or a very low-level learner trying to tackle something like that. One last thing I'd like to say, which I really liked about what Terry had to say, was she's never been thrilled by the Monkey King. And th- this, <laughs> this definitely appeals to me personally because while... I love China, and Chinese culture is fascinating to me. I don't necessarily go after all those stereotypical, you know, kung fu, picking up, you know, all these things. That's just not really my thing. Like, just look at the colors I use on Sino Spice. It's green. I intentionally chose the direct opposite to red. <laughs> you can like China. You can be interested in Chinese and not go after those stereotypical things. Well, you know, John, I got to say, that's a little bit leaving like our podcast listen to the soundtrack right <laughs> yes no gujan or whatever in the background yeah, but hey yeah, you, you still get your dose of chinese and chinese culture and you can learn chinese regardless all right now it's time for a word from our sponsor and our sponsor today is Manner Companion. All right. And today we are going to be talking about our level one graded reader, 300 basic characters, The Ransom of Red Chief. Yeah, this is a great story. And it's special, too, because it's based on a short story. I feel like the books that we write based on short stories are kind of special because we actually have room to flesh out the details how we want. Whereas in a book like Great Expectations, we're just like, 
<laughs> so it's so hard to like pare it down to something manageable. So the plot line is there's two small-time crooks in this little village. They decide to kidnap the son of the rich family in town and hold him for ransom uh, to get some money to, to move on. And so they kidnap this kid, but he turns out to be so naughty, the parents won't take him back. And they finally say... Spoilers! Pretty spoilers! Story. <laughs> yeah, and the cool thing about it is because it's a classic story by O. Henry, if you want to, you can go look up The Ransom of Red Chief by O. Henry. And then you could be like, hey, I like that. Now I'll read it in Chinese. And uh, The Ransom of Red Chief by Manor Companion. That's what you're looking for. So you can get it today on Amazon, iBooks, or Kobo. All right, now it's time for Rants and Raves. All right, John, what do you got for us today? A rant or a rave? Okay, I have a rave. I am going to rebel against the rebel. Terry Waltz said she doesn't like Zongzi, which I found kind of surprising and offensive because I think Zongzi are quite good. So it's that glutinous rice thing with, uh, usually it's meat in the middle in this part of China and Shanghai. What's not to love? Love them. All right, I'm done. I'm in between. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll eat one. So, Jared, you have a rant or a rave? I've got a rant today. You know, I was mentioning the, the National Chinese Language Conference, the NCLC conference I was at, and one of the plenums, uh, they are discussing the use of authentic materials in the classroom. I don't know, John, it just kind of graded on me some of the things that they were talking about. Like, they were talking about, you know, actually using, like, authentic novels, you know, the Monkey King, you know, using that in the classroom to teach students. and. You know, there's a time and a place for that if a student is advanced, you know, upper intermediate. But, you know, when we're dealing with like elementary or beginner, heaven forbid, or, you know, even intermediate students, a lot of that stuff's just so hard. But this guy, he said this. I'm like, and there was like four or 500 people watching this. He said, this is quote, so materials written for learners, they're easy to read, but they won't learn much. However, authentic materials are better because they're more challenging and have more words to learn. I, I I was really frustrated by this. I was like, seriously. So that is the, the quantitative not... approach. That's the thinking behind some of the HSK, right? It is. And, and unfortunately, it's the thinking behind a number of teachers. I felt like the voice in the wilderness calling out. I made a comment in the chat. I said, authentic materials are far too difficult. It turns students off from Chinese. And so many studies prove that learning outcomes are suboptimal. And I said, they're just not appropriate for L2 learners because they're not written for them. And why are we encouraging this? When research shows that we learn best when we read at high levels of comprehension, why are we not talking about comprehensive input? Why are we not discussing graded materials? Of course, you know, crickets chirping when they were taking questions, they, they didn't answer that, although we didn't have a lot of questions. But, you know, I was heartened by this a little bit, John, that I did receive a number of private messages from teachers saying, I totally agree with you. And it spurred some conversations with with the teachers who are in this camp. And so it, this, this even highlights a little bit of, you know, what we've been talking about uh, we, with Chinese education and even what Terry was talking about. You know, there are two different camps, really. And some people are still really kind of pushing a more traditional concept of language learning. And there's people who are on the more of the front end of comprehensible input. I'm heartened that I do know that, John, this is the future. I mean, you fast forward 30 years, it's going to be comprehensible input. That's that's what everyone's going to be talking about. And, and some of the old guard will have retired or or gone on by that point. But comprehensible input, it is the future of language education. And there are lots of uh, great teachers out there that are already pushing for it, advocating it. Uh, they might not necessarily have the, uh, the power to choose the, the curriculum at the schools where they're teaching, but we know they're out there. They're doing great work. They care about their students. I agree with you, Jared. It's going to happen. It is the future. 
You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, monkey bunch, duet singer, tree chopper, wood chip surfer, hard worker, and that one gal named Darlene. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena. We just ran out of time. You Can Learn Chinese Podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper. I'd like to thank our special guest, Terry Waltz. And of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Passon. See you next time.